This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Great to have you with us. I'm Helen Farmer. This is the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. On today's episode, some whole host of fascinating stories and experts as we found out about one family being truly affected by some unexpected activities, their bee community. So what do you need to know? We were down at MedLab Middle East finding out about the latest there, giving you some expert advice from a running coach about what you should do in the weeks running up to a race from food to gear, preparation and breaking through the wall. And in our legal clinic, what do you need to know about the metaverse, crypto, NFTs, blockchain? Is it indeed a bit of a wild west or are there some laws that you need to know? From the Dubai World Trade Center. This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer on Dubai Eye 103.8. Live at MedLab Middle East, paving the way for innovation and sustainability in laboratory medicine. As you've just heard, we are live from MedLab Middle East. Uh, It's running through until the 9th of February. It's day one and joining us, we've stolen her away from a very busy day. Selene Singer is with us, the Group Director of Informer Markets for Healthcare. Sit down, take 10 minutes to relax. How are you today? I'm really good, thank you. It's so good to be here. Tell us, I mean, so much goes on behind the scenes to put on an event of this scale. What's What's the response been like on day one? It's been phenomenal. We've got um, we've got so many people who've come down here. We had people waiting outside before the doors <gasps> opened. Um, it's just been a phenomenal response. Um, our exhibitors are super happy. Just people have come back to live events, and it's mm-hmm. been really exciting. For anyone that's not familiar with what MadLab's all about, and I think it's really interesting to point out that a number of years ago, it was part of Arab Health, and through sheer demand and, and popularity, it's now a standalone event. But who's it for? Can you give, give us a little insight into that? So it's for the medical laboratory industry. So our exhibitors here are um, laboratory, medical laboratory manufacturers, whether it's testing, um, you know, in sort of complex testing. And our visitors are distributors of those products. And more importantly, one of the USPs for MedLab Middle East is the uh, Congress that we have alongside it. We have 12 conferences and here we have laboratory directors, heads of lab, really learning the next innovations and how to... Uh, run their uh, clinics and laboratories. For me it's been really fascinating because I've been speaking to a number of these experts over the last few weeks as part of our Ion Health podcast and what it kind of really brought to life is just how much we perhaps oversee as patients in the population this work and the impact it has on our lives and I think the last few years have been an absolutely you know saying the example of that. So to see everyone together and talking and networking and you've had some amazing you know keynotes and, and uh, discussions I think the last few years have taught us so much about the importance of labs and I guess you must have seen a huge amount of advancements in technology as well as a result of the pandemic. So this is the highlight for the lab industry um, over the last couple of years. It's really brought to the forefront the importance of diagnostic testing and testing and how important it is for patient care. It's where you can discover what's wrong with someone, what's wrong with the patient and point them in the right direction. So um, the laboratory industry has gone sort of innovated, accelerated innovation in the last couple of years because of the pandemic and I think they've come out really at the forefront of what 
what they can do. Because we've been having discussions around accuracy, of course, um, removing pain points, um, scope and speed of, of that, and AI as well. You know, just the way that we're going to be seeing our results and interacting them with them and as patients in the future has been really, really interesting. And actually, on the ground, I had a little blood sugar test before the show. Very good. I was, I was like, I was like, this would be a really terrible way to find out I've got diabetes. <laughs> Everything's but normal. Well, isn't that the amazing thing that you can do that walking around I the show and you could take that home with you? So this is the advancements and the rapid testing. And I've how seen um, that is. a really lovely gentleman, and, and there's people from all over the world. You know, we've got you know China, the UK, you know Germany, Italy. And I was chatting with a gentleman from India who was showing me, I guess, a traditional type microscope. And he's like, this is what we're doing now. And instead of having to you know stand over it, stoop over it, you know, press your eye up to that you know, an iPad that you can then mark up and share with colleagues and share digitally. I was like, this is, it's just stuff that wouldn't even occur to me, but obviously this has just become so, so crucial really for public health yes, absolutely. and patient care, that patient, patient care, care experience yep. as well. Yep. I'm thinking about how much that's changed over the last few years. Yes, and, and getting the resu- instant results back so you can treat immediately, mm-hmm. really, or or take that home to, uh, for, for con- continuous testing as well. And data as well, exactly. you know, being able to look at, you know, data results on a, on a grand scale and even be able to think, okay, you know, the, we've seen a spike in XYZ in this area. Could this be, you know, preemptive of a, of a pandemic or something that we need to be tuned into and be able to do preventive healthcare based on accuracy and speed of results. What's been catching your eye in terms of um, tech and innovations and chat, even on day one, we're not even halfway through yet. Well, it's just been so overwhelming. I mean, I think the we've got a lot of bellwethers here. So really big companies who've come to show what they've they've been developing over the last few years. Um, so I think we, we need to go and see Abbott and uh, Sysmex and all of these companies. Um, what is uh, So the, the conferences is the USP here. Mm-hmm. So we've got we've really come back with our um, laboratory lab management, um, hematology conferences, etc. Um, and really seeing the delegates and wanting to learn, wanting to come back um, and wanting to share experiences of what they've been going through for the last two years and what developments they've been doing in their labs as well. Um, I understand that MedLab Middle East is going to be expanding as well to other regions what's going on there so we um, so the laboratory industry has obviously uh, done very well and is expanding um, so we've um, decided or uh, done the, made the right decision to expand into different regions so we were already doing this pre-pandemic but we're sort of accelerating that ourselves so we're in uh, Southeast Asia in the US in Africa in Saudi Arabia um, basically laboratory medicine and and the the tech around it is important everywhere in the world and so. it's 24 hours as well and year round another thing that caught my eye is save the date for next year yeah. we already know when <laughs> medlab at least is going to be happening in 2024 it's an important date to put on your calendar but, but it just goes to show you know the amount of well appetite from the the community as well the networking the deals that are being done the showcasing the discussions but also you know credit to you and the team who who work year round to, to bring this. For anyone that does want to come down, as we said, explore some of the topics, um, it's medlabme.com for more information. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really do appreciate it. Um, good to see you've got your flat shoes on. Clearly, yes, clearly learned from previous events. <laughs> exactly. Get thank back you. out there and thank you so, so much. You're listening to Afternoons with Helen Farmer on Dubai Eye 103.8. Live at MedLab Middle East, paving the way for innovation and sustainability in laboratory medicine. 
such a big atmosphere down here. Hundreds and hundreds of people coming down from the laboratory community to share their thoughts. We've had some fascinating keynotes and a lot of technology around. Joining us now to explain a little bit about what they're showcasing is Batham Bibi. He's the Divisional Vice President for the region um, at Abbott Rapid um, Diagnostics. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and sit with us today. It's a very, very busy event. How's it going for you, Batham? Very good. First, uh, thank you for having me, You're Helen. welcome. You're welcome. It's amazing that House Medlab, it's turned around into really a big exhibition and like triple the size of last year. We were just saying earlier, you know, it's starting as part of Arab health and clearly, you know, the appetite for the industry, the number of people that want to come together and connect. Now it's own standalone annual event and as you're saying, growing year on year. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've had a, I've had a blood sugar test myself. I've just seen a, a COVID test for dogs. It's, <laughs> it's all here. Tell us a little bit about what you're showcasing. You've got something called ID Now. What is it and what does it do? I, ID Now, it's a rapid molecular system. It has been been really one of um, the product that uh, drive uh, in a way partnering with the UAE with the Ministry of Health to drive UAE into no more any rules or policy so uh, rapid diagnostic is um, we started from before to tell you short story uh, it was for flu mm -hmm. and respiratory and RSV mm -hmm. and then when COVID came the pandemic as usual, Abbott always frontliner, and we became with this COVID cartridge on ID Now, and of course it was the first country outside USA, USA, uh, UAE to host ID Now, and we start really to do all these rapid diagnosing. Uh, when you say rapid, how rapid are we talking? Are we talking, it's, it's you know, a day turnaround? Five, five to thirteen minutes. Wow. It's connected, of course, to. Uh, data connectivity only it goes under the government of mm -hmm. course um, the difference between the rapid diagnostic and the molecular point of care is that the ID now is isothermal technology what, it, is, what does that mean it, this it's uh, who, who like like it's it comes first and it can detect more than one virus in the same oh. time as a machine well, and it's very like a small machine like a toast machine okay uh, I, I wish I can uh, show I'll, it. I'll come to your stand later. Yeah, <laughs> it's very small, really. It's um, it can do like as I mentioned, flu, respiratories, RSVs, and plus COVID. And of course, we have other stuff like on the booth, which is uh, uh, HIV self-test, which is it will be sold in the pharmacies. On of course where we, it is registered, and this is something really. Uh, very supported by the government mm -hmm. plus you have the pan bio flu covid combo which a professional uh, use of course uh, and you're gonna see it everywhere in uae well this is what we saw over the last you know this kind of flu season was not just flu but also a double pandemic of flu covid a lot of people having as you're saying this kind of rsvs infections and i think there's an awful lot of it going yeah. around now you know as you identify the pandemic was actually a huge driver for so much technology to that might have already been in existence suddenly be pushed the fore you know necessity being the mother of all invention um and we changed our habits as a, as a population you know we were hand washing a lot more we were wearing masks sure. um a lot of people today still wearing masks and you know being being respectful if they're not feeling well but we have seen a massive number of flu cases here in the uae this year because a lot of us have gone back to those pre-pandemic behaviors so why is it so important for us to be having this regular and accurate 
testing for the public health? For, for the public health, it's very important and for the traffic of the people. Mm. Especially when we removed the mask, so the flu became back again and in a strong way. Especially in H1N1, we've mm -hmm. seen it a lot in UAE, in the school. So, you know, like uh, w what's happened is we need to differentiate between COVID and flu. And still, we don't need to forget about COVID. Mm -hmm. COVID is still behind our back. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not over. But, of course, it's much easier for us to control it as a human being. And we learn a lot through this pandemic. So the flu, it came very aggressive, let's say. It. Sorry about this aggressive. No, it's true. Yeah. And, um, and, and what we did is immediately we took an action, especially for the schools, mm -hmm. the all offices. Like immediately when you say, I have COVID, the whole office closed, the school, class. So now it's a flu. You test with a nurse, of course, professional test, and immediately we can move forward and we know exactly A, B, whatever we have. Basim, one thing I think, well, two things I think that have come out of the pandemic when it comes to testing is, one, we're a lot more familiar with the processes as, as, as individuals, as people, as patients. We're a lot more... We've got a lot more ownership over our health data. I think the Al-Hassanat being an amazing example of that. But also just a lot more familiar with testing at home as well. Do you think there's going to be more implications for at-home testing for some of these um, issues that you've been addressing? No, the home, actually, that's as an abbot, it is our uh, focus is to do like to, to reach to your home instead for you to come to us. Make life easier. Yeah, make <laughs> life easier. And it's all digitalization and uh, there is no issue because the nurse it's going to do or if it is self-test you can buy it from the pharmacy well i'm wishing you wonderful next few days i know you can be a very very busy man indeed thank you for everything that's been going on thank behind the scenes me. here at medlab middle east speaking to us from abbott uh, we've been in conversation with bath and bb the divisional vice president for the region We're going to be speaking shortly to Sandra Carden. She runs the Edible Education and Beekeeping Programme at the American School Dubai, on hand to offer any aspiring beekeepers uh, some, some advice and also give us an idea about why bees are so essential to life, to the planet. First, though, I want to have a little chat with Kate Kikano. She is a mum, a businesswoman, and a bit of a beekeeper herself. And Kate, you got in touch with us recently about something frankly heartbreaking that had happened to you and your family before we find out what happened i'd love it if you could take us back in time a little bit and tell us about your family's introduction to bees and and how that love's developed can you explain a little bit more yes of course um so back in 2020 um we ended up having a nest of wild bees in our garden um, and I was homeschooling with the kids and um, we used to go outside and check out what the bees were doing every few days and realised that our neighbours on both sides had bee, bees in their trees as well and we just realised how calm and unobtrusive they were um, and then we went to Hatter Bee Farm and had a trip around there which was amazing um, and then for Christmas that year, my then seven-year-old um, put a beehive on the top of his Christmas list. That's amazing. I mean, I have to say, it takes a certain type of parent to say, do you know what? We, that, that's, that's entirely possible. It's how on earth did you then start your very own beehive at home? What did you need? Well, we, um, we contacted a local beekeeper. 
Um, and he did an assessment of the area to make sure that there was enough food, plants for the bees within a five-kilometer radius. Um, we spoke to our neighbors to make sure that they were happy. Um, we did an assessment, again, with the beekeeper to make sure um, we had the best position for the hive. Um, and then a gentleman called Jim from China um, uh, sent Santa a beehive for, uh, for my little boy. Um, and we took some lessons and we got our first few frames of bees and a queen bee and, and went from there. You say went from there. You make it sound, you make it sound so, so, you know, so easy and normal. How, how many bees have, have you had in the end? And I w- want to find out what happened um, recently. But at, at the peak of your beekeeping, are we, how many bees are we talking? How much honey? And what were the kids getting out of it? Yeah, so we started off with about six frames of bees. Um, and each hive box has about 10 frames in. And within about two years, we'd got one hive with two boxes with about 17 frames of bees. Wow. So that's about 40,000 bees, which sounds like an awful lot, but you really wouldn't know that they were there. Um, it was literally a line of one bee in, one bee out. Um, you could stand next to them with food or drink and they wouldn't bother you. Um, you could literally stand in their flight path and they just fly around you. They were really calm. Um, in terms of the learning experience for the children, I mean, it's just, it's an incredible structure within the hive. Um, so, you know, these bees start off as like nursemaids feeding the, feeding the, um, the larva bees. Um, and then they progress to cleaning and gardening uh, and, and guarding the hive, and then they go out and start foraging. So they, they it, it's really fascinating to watch them. And we did a hive inspection every four to eight weeks, um, and we just took enough honey for us, um, and you know, to give to friends and family. So we would probably take one. Uh, to two frames of honey per year, um, which probably gave us, oh, I don't know, uh, one to two kilos of, of honey, which wow. tasted amazing. And we got so many fr- so much fruit on our trees as well. We had so many lemons and limes, and neighbors were coming to take limes and bringing us back jars of marmalade and pickle. Oh, and like it was great. Proper good yeah. life stuff. It sounds absolutely I idyllic. Know. <laughs> but it was, unfortunately, for quite tragic reasons that you got in touch with me recently, Kate. Can you tell us what happened in the last few weeks? Yeah, so we noticed that there was less activity around the hive. Um, So we donned our beekeeping suits and and got our smoker out and we opened up the hive and we saw thousands upon thousands of dead bees. Um, And we also saw baby bees which were halfway through hatching out of their cells that had been killed upon hatching. So it was very apparent that this was a chemical poisoning. Um, And we found out that there had been mosquito fogging going on in our compound that week. Um, And since I started talking about it, I've had a lot of messages from other people to the week that they've had fogging going on, they mm. found that their hives have been destroyed. And my gardener was saying the same. He said, yeah, 
I know when there's been fogging going on. I work in loads of communities and all the wild bees disappear too. Oh, it's just, I mean, heartbreaking for you as a family. But when we think about the wider community, health of Dubai and, and the planet, you know, the implications for this are absolutely enormous. We are going to spe- speak to Cardin um, in just a couple of minutes, but what would your message be to anyone listening today who is, yes, understandably worried about pests and biting and all of that stuff, but you know, there are other ways. What would you like to like to say, Kate? Well, I, I know that, you know, none of us like mosquitoes. Um, so we certainly need to control the mosquito problem. The problem with fogging is that it's getting rid of other beneficial pollinators that don't bounce back like the mosquitoes. The mosquitoes are back in full force after one to two weeks. Um, so there's, we, we can do things. Um, so, for example, mozzies like laying their, their eggs in dark, wet places. Um, so if we reduce these in the garden, or if we use something called mosquito bits or mosquito dunks that you can buy from Amazon, they, they kill the larvae without harming um, other insects. Um, and there's also a new technology called biogens that's available here. Um, and this is really effective. Um, Green Community West residents implemented the system a few years ago, and they're saying it's working brilliantly. One resident was like, I've not had a single mosquito bite in my garden for three years. Um, And basically, um, it was developed with 14 years of research, and it uses um, carbon dioxide, Um, the same amount as the breath of a small child to attract the mosquitoes and then it sucks them into um, into a little uh, bag where they 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 just dehydrate so it's not killing your your bees your butterflies your ladybugs your dragonflies you know so it's much better for the environment I did a bit of research and it's actually as cost effective if not more so in the long term than chemical fogging Kate, has this put you off or are you hoping to rebuild your buzzing community? I, I would love to rebuild the community. Um, there's not a lot of point um, if they're going to keep getting wiped out like this. So I really would love for people to, to start talking to their community management and say, look, there are alternatives out there. Can we research them? You know, what can we do within our communities to look after our ecosystems? Kate, thank you so much for sharing your story and shedding some light on, on what's been happening in, in your community and the impact it's had on your um, on those bees and your family as well. We're going to be speaking next to Sandra. She is the woman behind the Edible Education and Beekeeping Programme at the American School of Dubai, talking about just how integral bees are to the community. From the Dubai World Trade Centre. This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer on Dubai Eye 103.8. Live at MedLab Middle East, paving the way for innovation and sustainability in laboratory medicine. It is Helen with you. We've just been hearing there from Kate Carno, who's family's kind of buzzing bee community has been recently devastated by 
chemical fogging. Um, obviously, they're going after the mosquitoes, but sadly taking a lot more in its wake. So let's talk about the importance of bees now. And joining us now from American School Dubai is Sandra Carden, who runs the Edible Education and Beekeeping Program there. Sandra, really heartbreaking to hear what Kate and her family and so many other aspiring beekeepers around the region have experienced. Um, I'd love to start, though, by asking you to explain how and why bees are so essential for the planet. Can you help us out? Oh, yeah, certainly. Um, you know, without bees, the entire food system would collapse and, and humans would have about four years left and then we too would die. <laughs> so they're responsible, not just bees, but all pollinators for pollinating our food, like 80% of it. So, yeah, we wouldn't last long without them. <laughs> I think, I mean, that completely blows my mind. It really, really does. And we know, we know Einstein had theories about the importance of bees. And um, to hear it you know, play out now and, and here in Dubai, just, it's really, it's genuinely shocking, to be honest. And I wondered, have you heard anything like Kate's stories before? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been, in 2019, we won the Zaid Sustainability Prize to have our beehive. And from that time forward, I've probably lost a hive every year chemical poisoning and not even necessarily from our mm. own campus but as they fog in this community so it's it's pretty common actually for beekeepers to have a chemical poisoning from fogging we've had a number of messages asking about some of the alternatives that, that kate mentioned and i wondered if you could outline some of the things that you know community managers can use but also us as individuals in terms of mosquito repellent what have you found to be effective that's not the chemical fogging that can be so devastating well i think it's it's really the pesticides that you choose to use like the most dangerous pesticides are the neonicotinoids we call them neonics for short and they're kind of like nicotine and, and uh, they're addictive to bees. They like specifically go to those flowers that have those. And, you know, they're illegal in the UK, for example, but they're not illegal here in the UAE or in the US or many, many countries. So I think it really has to do with what chemicals you're using and ones that specifically target the nervous systems of the pollinators are especially harmful. Uh, and those can be found in those fogging. But like Kate said, um, you know, you cannot have standing water in your in your backyard because any type of standing water will breed insects. Um, and and I really, really am keen to find out more about the green community and what they use. That seems like a much more sustainable solution than just kind of randomly throwing poison into the air. I wondered what else we could be doing as individuals listening today to be more bee friendly as, a, as, as families and, you know, renters and homeowners here in Dubai. Yeah, oh, there's, I have a whole list, but um, I think our first yeah, one is, <laughs> yeah, is we have to preserve our wild habitats because honeybees, I mean, there's 20,000 different types of bees in the world and there's only eight types of honeybees and Honeybees get all of the media attention, but actually wild bees are just equally as important. Um, so to preserve these wild habitats and then give them food, because one of their biggest problems is they're being starved to death. There's just not enough pollen-rich plants for them to eat from. So trees like the chaf tree, the cedar tree, the moringa, all of those, they produce more flowers and more food than any type of flower you can plant in your garden. 
So really trees are, are where they get the majority of their food and their pollen. Um, and then, of course, support farmers that are using organic practices. Um, I mean, I, there's, there's several here in the UAE, and they don't use those harmful pesticides. They, you know, support, support uh, building soil and using composting systems. And, and those are the people or the cornerstone of, of, of what we eat. It's our food system, right? So by supporting those organic farmers, we're also helping bees. Um, and I think the last thing is the, the number one uh, email that I get from parents is they have a wild beehive in their backyard and can I come remove it? And I always tell them those little Arabian dwarfies are wild and they're endangered. And if they've made their way into your backyard, that's a good sign and you should just leave them there. Um, but a lot of people are scared of bees, right? We need to kind of reconstruct our fear of bees. Sandra, thank you so much for shedding some light on this. If anyone wants to find out more about the program that you're running at American School Dubai and, of course, some of the resources that you've got, what's the best way of getting in touch? Well, um, I have uh, an Instagram, which I run, um, about my edible education program, and it's uh, ASD underscore sustainable underscore garden. And uh, they can send messages through that Instagram. Um, So, yeah, that would be wonderful. (laughs) I love questions. Thank you so, so much. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Really, really do appreciate it. Really fascinating. And again, please keep us posted on this. Um, And for anyone, community managers listening, take note, do some research, um, because there can be a better way. Farmer with you through until five o'clock today. So much happening. We've got some amazing real life stories and some brilliant experts as well. Starting the show this afternoon with a pet behaviorist. Um, Amy Orm has been working with cats and dogs for nearly 14 years. So this is your opportunity to get in touch with anything that's stressing you out or your animals. So please don't hesitate to reach out. We are talking, yes, chewing, pulling, barking, probably a bit of pooping as well. Um, Amy, you're also a specialist when it comes to canine aggression um, and is the founder of training company Perfect Behaviour. How are you, Amy? Hi, I'm good, thank you. How are you, Helen? I'm really well, thank you. Really, really well. Now, we get, we get a lot of behaviour questions um, on our weekly Pets and Vets show on a Wednesday, which is why we've brought you in, because I feel like it does deserve a bit of a special look. Um, I'd love to start with, if you don't mind, a bit, of, a bit about your philosophy when it comes to working with animals. What, where's, your, where's your head at and what can people expect when they come to work with you? Yeah, um, so I class myself as a, a force-free trainer and behaviourist. Um, so I say trainer and behaviourist. There's a, there's a nice crossover. I do the behaviour stuff, but I know how to train the behaviours that we need as well compared to a behaviourist who might just kind of... Um, jump in and just talk a lot about the theory I can do the practical stuff as well but when we talk about kind of force free and I'm also a fear free certified trainer um, we're looking at not using aversives with our animals with our cats and our dogs so aversives are things that might kind of stop the behavior but they might stop it because the animal might find it a little bit unpleasant or a little bit scary or uncomfortable so Um, so 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 these are things like I don't even like saying them to be honest, you know, things like prong yeah. collars, um, choke chains, things like that. We don't, yeah. that, so that I, is not part of the plan. No, that will absolutely never be part of my training plan at all. 
it's very much about making sure that we're meeting the animal's needs as well. We can correct a lot of behavioral issues just by making sure that the dog is getting enough mental and physical exercise. It's interesting because we hear this a lot about parenting that, you know, kind of so-called negative behaviors in children are about unmet needs. Is that comparable then in animals? Absolutely it is. So if your dog is chewing things, if they're chewing things that we don't want them to do, then we need to make sure that we're providing the right kind of things for them to chew on rather than telling them off and punishing them for chewing the wrong things. I want to ask you, Amy, about some of the common questions and concerns that people are coming to you with right now. What's keeping you busy? Um, it's it's lots of barking. <laughs> um, I'm sure I'm yeah. going to go. I'm sure I'm going to go deaf soon. We've, um, we've just had a text message on exactly that, so I'm, I'm keen to get your take. So yep. lots of barking. Okay, are you happy yep. to take some questions? Because we've had a number coming through on four zero zero one. Yes, I would love to. From the Dubai World Trade Center. This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer on Dubai Eye 103.8. Live at MedLab Middle East, paving the way for innovation and sustainability in laboratory medicine. We're having a pet behavior special speaking to Amy Orm. She is founder of the training company Perfect Behavior and is taking my questions <laughs> um, and yours. So if you do have any worries about the behavior of your dog or cat, um, by all means, do reach out the usual way, 4001 ARN Play App, the WhatsApp as well. Um, Amy, I'm curious, we, we talked on how barking was one of the most common problems with our, uh, our canine friends. What about cats? With cats, it's typically what we call inappropriate elimination, so not using the letter tray correctly, um, or intercat aggression. So um, most recently it's been trying to get cats to be friends with each other or just live peacefully <laughs> with each other. You've got, you got your work cut out there, I'm sure. What's easier to train, <laughs> do you think? Are cats or dogs easier to work with? Um, dogs, usually. In all, in all honesty. Well, let's see if we can help out Janice, who's been in touch, saying, please, please, please help with barking. I've got medium-sized mixed breed. She barks at visitors, the gardener, the doorbell, and it's making being around her really stressful. Would appreciate some pointers. Janice, I've got a barky spaniel, and I absolutely know what you mean in terms of feel, worrying about something triggering them. That noise can feel really, really overwhelming. Um, and also, no one likes to see their dog distressed. Where to start, um, Amy, when it comes to helping our dogs feel a bit calmer and, and stop that barking as much as possible? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is a, a really common issue that I see, but it's very common in our, our mixed breeds, our local desert dogs that we have. Um, they very much, as I say, love the, the voice of their, the sound of their own voice. Mm -hmm. um, so the first thing to start with is a little bit of management. So this comes... I call it lazy training, but it's trying to reduce your dog's access to to the things that make them bark within reason. So try and reduce the barking. The more the dog barks, the more they're going to bark. So this might look like just kind of popping them in another room to start with when the gardener comes over. Um, and then we want to look at changing how they respond when they see these things. So we can look at when visitors come in, we can look at teaching our dogs to go and chill out on their bed when the doorbell rings and people walk in. Um, we can look at also making sure that, again, that we're meeting their needs, that we're doing things that help reduce their stress levels. So what we call the mental enrichment. So the chewing, licking, the sniffing, and the really important one, destroying stuff. So lots of shredding. 
We use a snuffle mat sometimes with Lucy when uh, well, we know there's going to be a visitor coming or roughly around the time that we know a doorbell might go. It is really effective, yep. but you've got to be quite organised, which we're not always, <laughs> to be honest. Yes. So there are loads of little ways that we can kind of be organised um, that I've found over the years just to make sure that clients are doing their homework, that it doesn't become a big chore for them. Um, so one option is what I call reward stations which are basically just little pots or little jars of treats all around the house. Um, and then a little bit of meal prepping. So if um, like you can pre-prepare everything either early that week or early that morning, we can prepare Kongs and put them in the freezer, um, like our, feed, our stuffed feeding toys. We can pre-prepare snuffle mats and just kind of pile them on top of each other in a drawer. Anything like that that means that we're more like us as humans are more likely to succeed to help our dogs succeed. Thank you, Amy. Can we can we talk cats? And it's interesting you mentioned um, kind of undesirable um, elimination, so to- toileting. And, and John says exactly that. Male cats peeing outside the litter box after being neutered. Seven months old, only neutered a month and a half ago. He doesn't show any signs of discomfort and does use the litter box regularly, um, but he sometimes um, pees where the dog spends most of their time. And there's absolutely no subtlety with this at all. It's just like, I'm not sure about this dog and I'm going to show you. Um, any insights yep. there for John? Cats have no shame. Um, so it could be a little bit of kind of territorial marking behavior. Um, he could just be feeling a little bit insecure around the dog. Um, so I'd just make sure that there's nothing going on that you're not seeing. Like maybe the dog is chasing the cat a little bit when you're not home. Um, and then it's making sure that we've got the right size litter box. So most of the commercial kind of common litter trays are too small for our cats. Um, especially as you said, like he's seven months, so he's still growing. Mm. So the, the litter, length, litter tray length should be at least one and a half times the length of the cat. Um, so a lot of my clients end up using things like kind of underbed storage boxes as litter trays. It needs to be big so that the cat is comfortable. Um, then we can look at using as well some kind of pheromone plugins around the areas where the cat tends to pee just to reduce his stress levels a little bit. Thank you. I'd never even thought about that size factor. We've, we've spoken about litter trays in the past when it comes to, to height and discomfort of older cats getting in and out and that becoming problematic. But for younger ones, yeah. I had, hadn't even crossed my mind, Amy. And we've had a question here, no name in it, saying, can Amy please help about guarding behaviours in our dog? We're trying to give toys and treats for mental stimulation, but it ends up becoming a pain point between them. Interesting point, actually, this kind of guarding resources. Um, what, yeah. what can you speak to around that? So, I mean, the, the simplest and easiest, and easiest, and I think uh, the listener said that she has two dogs and they're, they're sort yes. of squabbling over things. Yeah. So the best thing is to is, is to separate them. So don't allow them to, to have access to each other's things, um, which done temporarily can actually just be enough to reduce the stress um, around these kind of... Um, of feeling the need to guard and be possessive of, of their food and their toys. Um, so when it comes to sort of what we term resource guarding, the, the stress even starts as, as you're preparing your pet meals. Um, so I tend to separate them before we've even started getting the food ready. Then I'll feed them separately. Once they've finished, I'm going to remove the bowls and then let them back together. And then, so that's like a... If that's all you want to do for the rest of your dog's lives is feed them separately and keep them separate, that is absolutely fine. 
Otherwise, there's things that we can do that's a little bit more complicated, a little bit more involved in terms of kind of teaching them to share, um, which basically starts by having them separated by a baby gate to reduce any kind of risk of, of fights and things and literally saying, like, here's a treat for you. Here's a treat for you. Just like when you have kids. Just like when you have kids. Kids, yeah. You're getting exactly the same amount and mummy loves you both the same. (laughs) So it's a big topic. It can be something that needs a bit of expert guidance. Um, Amy, I wonder now, I'm I'm certainly, my husband is petitioning for us to get a puppy that we saw at the weekend. Seven puppies have been left with their mum at our vets. And we went in, we took our dog in with a bit of an ankle sprain and of course met the puppies. And of course... They're incredible. <laughs> However, I've got a pretty strict one-in, one-out policy when it comes to the dogs, a.k.a. cost centres. But it did make me think, <laughs> if anyone is getting um, a young puppy, what are some of the yep. steps they can take in terms of getting off on the right foot, really, um, in terms of training and socialising so you're hopefully not com- coming into some of these more serious difficulties when they get a bit older? Yes. So my absolute favorite thing is working with puppies um, and hopefully preventing having to see them in a few years for behavioral issues. Um, So the aim with our puppy, as you said, is we're future proofing. We're looking to make sure that we have a a confident, kind of sociable, calm, chilled out dog um, that doesn't stress out when something changes. So you you touched on kind of socialization. Um, there's two aspects to a dog being sociable. There's being able to interact with the world, being able to kind of to, to greet people appropriately, kind of not jumping, um, just going up saying hi. And the same with sort of being able to, to greet and play with other dogs. And then there's being able to ignore things. To just go, it's no big deal that there's a leaf blower on the other side of the road. It's no big deal that there's a big dog walking past barking at me. Um, so it's kind of very gentle exposure to these kind of things, to as many sort of novel things as possible in a positive way. So one great exercise with a puppy is to just kind of sit out on the street, sit out in front of your house, take some of their kibbles, take some higher value treats and just sit and watch the world go by and get lots of tasty treats. Um, that sounds like my idea of having a bit of people watching and some treats coming my way I want to squeeze in one last question if that's okay Okay. Hallie's been in touch saying my cat is very loving but suddenly starts to bite she'll come and be affectionate and then bite even my kids what can we do Amy able to give us a quick a quick bit of advice for dealing with Hanley's uh, nibbly cat yep so again a very common issue with cats they don't tend to um, give any warning signals before they've had enough so I would go for the three-second rule. So it would be like, stroke, stroke, stroke. Okay, I'm going to walk away and leave you wanting more. Um, so hopefully avoiding those kind of, your cat having to, to turn around and say, oh, no, I've had enough now, please stop. So, oh, so the, they're, the they're, really, they're trying to communicate. Yes, yeah. Cats, okay. are, cats are not subtle when it comes to their <laughs> communication. Amy, we have run out of time. We haven't run out of questions. We'd love to have you back on and explore some of these issues further and, and answer more of our, our burning questions about our lovely furry friends. In the meantime, then, if people haven't had a question answered today or feel like they need some one-on-one attention with some of the issues we've been discussing, what's the best way of getting in touch with you? Um, you can drop me a message on Instagram, um, Perfect Behaviour with a U, M-E, um, or you can, you can find my WhatsApp number on there as well brilliant amy thank you so so much if you do want amy's details send me a little message saying pet and i will send you your instagram so you can explore that further and amy will have a chat on air very soon i hope thank you so so much
Digital Legal Clinic. We are going to be talking this afternoon about blockchain, crypto, the metaverse, a topic that many of us, including myself, are struggling to get their heads around when it comes to the complexities, especially from a legal perspective. As you know, there are many events that have happened recently, and these have uh, hit pretty hard the cryptocurrency market, talking, of course, um, FTX and a few others as well. So to help guide us through the legal minefield and answer your questions is Dr. Laura Voda. She's a business lawyer, university lecturer at Fitch & Co. Legal Consultancy. Dr. Laura Voda, how are you this afternoon? Uh, good afternoon. All well. Uh, thank you for having me. How are you? I'm well. Now, I'm going to be completely honest. I will have to stop you if things get a bit too technical. So please, please, please assume that I'm basically a 10-year-old when it comes to what we're talking about this afternoon. <laughs> Do you still feel like there's an awful lot of confusion amongst the general kind of population when it comes to navigating the world of crypto, NFTs and the metaverse? Yeah, it's something new. Um, I'd have to agree that it is, a, it is a new domain. It's a new realm. And that people would need time in order to understand it. But at the same time, this time is running fast. So um, the advantage of the first entrance has been seen already for the early investors in cryptocurrencies. I think we all know that. So why not? Let's take whatever opportunity we have in order to, um, to get used to it, to start investing, to know how protected we are. And why not to, to benefit from, from this new space? It must be interesting from a legal perspective as well, you know, you guys having to be one step ahead. You know, is this still a bit of a, a bit of a wild, wild west, a bit of a, bit of a um, yeah, a bit of a lawless land? Yes, you're right. It's, it's actually a very good comparison. Um, many um, commentators uh, with regards to this virtual domain considered it as, as a wild, wild west. And its initial inception, I would say, if, if, if I'm allowed to use this wording, was to be mm. outside the traditional form of regulation. But the trend that we mm. see in the, in the digital world now is to have regulation, especially after the FTX uh, breakdown, as you have correctly mentioned. Uh, FTX was an unregulated exchange, was having no, uh, let's say, financial backup from, let's say, uh, a financial regulator. And this has led to, um, to the result that we have all seen in the mass media. Um, if you look by comparison into what is a regulated and a non-regulated marketplace, in a regulated marketplace, you have some sort of a financial backup. For example, when you go to the bank, to a mm -hmm. traditional bank, to deposit your funds there or to do operations, you know that the bank has a certain liquidity, a certain financial uh, buffer uh, to keep your money safe. This thing didn't happen in the case of FTX. So this is the difference in between unregulated and regulated exchanges. The regulated exchanges are the ones that have let's say, a securities commission or a governmental body supervising their activity and making sure that they don't play around with people's money. That's the, the number one thing that any investor would need to know about. Obviously, nowadays in the market, there are so many offers and some of them are so customer-oriented that it's, uh, it's very difficult to say no. But at the same time, we've seen the, the major drawback that happened with all these speculations. And therefore, our advice would be to pair your investment with the risk you take as as an investor in this crypto mm -hmm. or in the in the digital world whatsoever.
Dr. Laura, can I ask you, you know, if there is fraudulent activity when purchasing crypto, for example, is there any recourse? What, what laws do apply? It's a very good question. I'll have to agree with you. Uh, it depends on what is happening, because uh, if we look back into what we've seen in the press at the beginning of 2022, there were so many people claiming that their property has been stolen in the metaverse. And this has happened probably as a result of hacking because the metaverse platform whatever it was i remember at that time it was um the open sea or decentraland um these platforms have been hacked or the username and password of a specific investor has been hacked that has led to fraudulent activity but if you look into the bigger picture of the crypto world it has been traditionally associated with fraudulent activity because there was no kind of supervisory authority looking at what is going on there. So basically, with uh, anonymous uh, usernames, passwords, etc., large amounts of capital were being moved through this domain uh, outside mm. the, the eyes of the regulators. So traditionally, yeah, there is a stereotype that says that the crypto world is associated with frauds or fraudulent activity, but it's not always the case. And now we're in 2023, um, many governments are looking into that, many governments support that. There are uh, crypto coins that are used nowadays in interbank exchanges, and this reduces the time of a bank transfer from days to a couple of seconds. So there are a lot of benefits associated with that, but as in any new domain, yeah, it takes time for, for things to sink in and to uh, to have specific, let's say, uh, patterns based on which people can move. That's why it's uh, it's essential exactly. to gather as much as information as possible and to make uh, an informed and the correct uh, decision. Smart, smart decisions. We've had a number of messages about about this. Uh, Liam, Liam saying it is the wild west out there. Only only invest what you can afford to lose. Um, I'm curious, Dr. Lorovod. Um, tell us a little bit about crypto here in the UAE. Could could anybody set up their own? cryptocurrency and company it's, um, it's a new field that we have here in the UAE as a lawyer I'm receiving more and more requests in uh, in this field uh, obviously there are a few free zones that uh, allow crypto activities um, the problem that appears is still with the banks like the conversion of let's say crypto into fiat into normal currency is still a problem mm -hmm. Uh, but from a legislative perspective, yes, it is possible. Uh, as you know, uh, the UAE is investing quite a lot in this domain. There are so many metaverse assemblies, crypto-related events in here. Uh, very large players in the crypto world are active in the UAE or from the UAE. So I think it's, um, it's, um, it's a good place to start or to expand operations for the entities that already operate in other parts of the world. Uh, obviously, uh, everybody who is um, uh, keen on or has appetite to come here would benefit from, from, from the more lenient taxation regime. So there are a few uh, advantages that are associated with these types of investments. So I would say that, yes, it's a, it's a good field for investment and it would improve in the future. This is why I think it's so interesting to be having these conversations on an ongoing basis because it's such a quickly developing space. From the Dubai World Trade Center. This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer on Dubai Eye 103.8. Live at MedLab Middle East, paving the way for innovation and sustainability in laboratory medicine.
Joining us now is Dr. Laura Boda. She is a business lawyer, university lecturer at Fitch & Co Legal Consultancy, and we are talking, well, I was going to say the future, but it really is happening now, crypto, metaverse, blockchain. What do you need to know before parting with those hard-earned dirhams? Um, and is this really the lawless land we've been led to believe? Um, Laura, question Sean saying, hi guys, I'm a musician and so many artists internationally are selling their music as NFTs. Is this a good thing to do? And most importantly, is it safe? Interestingly, my brother is also a musician and he is selling their music and interestingly, their album cover artwork as NFTs. Um, how, how do you feel about this space when it comes to, well, really holding the power over a lot of your creations in, in that space, Dr. Laura? I feel great personally. I uh, do encourage all the creatives out there to to sell their work as NFTs. Uh, remember that the the major characteristic of a token that an, one of these NFTs is the fact that it's unique, is non-fungible. And the more valuable is the work to which it is associated, the more valuable this uh, token becomes with time. So I think it's a, it's a great form of investment, and I think that uh, any creative should take advantage of this new space. I, I encourage this. Uh, I think it's it's a great business idea for multiplying someone's creative efforts, and uh, it's it's a great income generator for for the creative. Now to respond to the second part of the question on how safe it is. Well, it very much depends on how it is coded, minted, how it is sold, on which kind of platform. Because, you see, when we look to invest into, into a digital platform, we look on how, uh, let's say, uh, well-known is that platform, if it is regulated, what kind of integration it has, what kind of traffic it has, because this is where um, the money comes from. Now, if you look into any e-commerce platform that we use today in 2.0, in Web 2.0, for example, when you purchase uh, things online, obviously you are interested or the, the platforms that you go to most, most often are the ones that you know are good, they provide good delivery, they have good service, etc. The same thing would happen in 3.0 uh, with these platforms where we uh, wish to invest. So the same thing would happen with the creatives. It depends very much on what kind of platform they, they make this association with, uh, how good they are, how integrated they are, how the product is, is um, coded, which is very important uh, from, from a regulator's perspective. This is a risk, the risk of coding of, of, of any digital product. And we've seen it quite often in the regulation in the EU, in the European Union. Uh, we've seen it as well in the United States. We see it in Singapore. We tend to see it even here. So these processes are super, super important. But overall, uh, the idea is great. Go forth, Sean. Let us know. Give us a good deal on your first on your first lot of NFTs. <laughs> um, John, saying if you buy, if you buy crypto, actually, Laura, we should do an NFT of this show. There we there we go. We've got the content, and we can retire. We're onto something. Um, John, asking if you buy crypto with PayPal or credit card, are you more protected? Interesting. Um, what's what's your take on that? Um, it's an interesting question, but I don't see, let's say, uh, where the protection comes from, whether you pay by credit card or by PayPal, because in reality, the fiat currency is transferred uh, towards the respective asset that you're purchasing, in, in this case, uh, the crypto. 
And then, uh, obviously, the, the security of the transaction has nothing to do with how much value this um, crypto would have, let's say, in the future. So being more protected or not, uh, it, it generally depends because uh, what gives you protection is, as I said, the type of platform that you invest in. If the exchange from where you buy or the marketplace is well regulated, obviously are more protected as an investor. But if if you go into a platform which comes from nowhere's land, because we've seen so many uh, initial coin, coin offerings uh, done via, I don't know which kind of offshore entities in the middle of nowhere, then probably that's, that's exactly the wild, wild west as we were discussing uh, in the beginning. But to resume, um, the fact that you're paying by credit card or PayPal would not give you a greater protection. Where you put the money, this is what Thanks. gives the, the real protection. Thanks, Laura. One last question, and Sarah beat me to this, saying, any predictions for the future? Um, she's asking, do you think in 20 years we'll all be using crypto the way we use our phones now and don't carry cash? So I'm asking you on uh, on live radio <laughs> to get the crystal uh, ball out. <laughs> what do you think we'll be doing I, in a couple I of think decades? Yes. I think yes. I think yes, because uh, everything is moving towards that that direction now. You see, you have now the USDT, which is uh, the, let's say, web interface of the dollar, which is uh, considered to be a stable uh, digital currency. We have interbank currencies. Um, and then, for sure, um, in the near future, I would say, uh, the digital currencies are going to be uh, the replacement of the, of the traditional currencies that we have now. I'm a firm believer in that, I actually. <laughs> I, 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 need to, I need to educate myself. Um, and a message here saying, does your expert invest in crypto and how? Mm, that's a bit of a personal one, but I am curious. What, what, are, what are, you, uh, are you dabbling yourself? I mean, I'm happy to say that I am just as part of a portfolio, but I'm certainly not that well. Uh, clued up on what exactly is going on over there. What about you? Well, I'm investing, of course, but uh, <laughs> um, not as a matter of, let's say, uh, money making in the sense that substituting my, my regular income. Uh, for me, mm. it's more interested to, to see how the market is moving because uh, yeah, we've seen now after the FTX uh, situation, the markets went down. And then we've seen uh, cases where, let's say, we had, I don't know, buyers of uh, 10,000, 100,000 bitcoins, etc., when the, the price went even uh, higher. So, you see, my problem in, in this realm is that the market still remains volatile and there's no hedge towards that. So, you have to understand this market very well um, before placing larger amounts of capital. And that's what I do. I'm still a learner. Um, if you want uh, to have a, a, an own opinion that I have is that I would do something to educate uh, the others rather than uh, pushing them into investing into something because these decisions are very personal. So my next step mm -hmm. would be to write a book uh, which would be dedicated to lawyers and to non-lawyers to understand that there are legalities associated with this space. Uh, that we have even court cases in the UAE associated with, with this space. So things are not as rosy as, uh, let's say, uh, uh, people tend to believe they are. Uh, so that's what I do. I'm, I'm a learner. I'm still learning. <laughs>
I'm thank you for thank you for saying that because you know a lot of the press we hear is so highs and low. It's you know a 17 year old you know in a, in his bedroom who's suddenly a multimillionaire, or it's people that have lost everything. And I think there's there's no shame, and I think we should. I think everybody should have a, a bit more humility around. I'm I'm learning. I'm trying. I'm experimenting. I'm trying to educate myself. And I think for a big issue for me is that there's so much misinformation out there. Are there any resources where you feel like you can actually do some really solid research before you, you know, if, if not dive in, but certainly dip your toe into crypto? Um, I would say that yes and no, because, you know, this wave with crypto started a couple of years back and people got very much attached to this idea in the realm of fast earnings. There are no sustainability in these fast earnings. Nobody makes money like that. Uh, how you can learn or where you can learn, obviously there are a few um, um, writers that we could recommend. And in general, you can look at the website of law firms that uh, actually um, write in, in, um, in this field with their technology, media, telecom teams. We do the same thing. Um, books, I'd say there are few, but of course, I'm sure there's going to be literature available. Um, of course, any financial regulator, any securities regulator in the world, if you look at the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US, for example, uh, if you look what is happening in the EU, if you look in the press, even in the UAE, you see literature that is published by VARA, by Virtual Assets Regulatory Authority, which is here in Dubai, in uh, Dubai World Trade Center. Um, therefore, um, any solid, verified information is, is useful. Uh, and then obviously uh, it depends on each person's, let's say, availability to take the risk because there can be speculative investments that can bring a very high return or, as you said, there can be speculative investments that bring huge losses. So uh, regulators do a good job, law firms do a good job. Uh, of course, there are a few writers in this field. There are a few websites like Cointelegraph, etc., where uh, people can read um, useful information. Uh, my plan is to write the book, as I said. I'm sure there are others. I encountered a lot of valuable writers in UAE. One of them is Elias Ahonen that um, I had a panel with at Dubai Arbitration Week last year. Uh, it was an amazing insight. Uh, there are firms that, that do NFTs for, for law firms, for, for the general market. So. Uh, it finally depends on how we filter the information as, as individuals. But if you want to gather information, you can definitely do so. And as said, uh, an informed consent is, is, is the best thing that, that uh, you can do to yourself and a good decision in this respect. And good advice, should things, should things go wrong. Dr. Laura Voda, that's what you're there for as business lawyer and university lecturer. Thank you so much for joining us from Fitch & Co Legal Consultancy. Really lots to think about, lots to research, and lots perhaps to be excited about too. The Ratcalf Marathon is taking place on the 18th of Feb, so the countdown is on. We're getting you in shape. I personally can't run a bath, but if you've signed up for the event, we're on hand to help, and it could be that 5K, a relay, or the full 21.1. Joining us now is a spokesperson from the much-anticipated event, Stephanie Humphrey. She's an endurance running coach and a member of the Under Armour squad. Stephanie, thank you so much for being with us. Um, how is preparation going? What are you hearing from the running community? 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Um, the running community, I'm hearing a lot of people are going to Razzle Kamer for sure for the 18th of February. It is a huge race that a lot of people target. And from my client's side, a lot of people are now just about to enter what we call their taper phase. So their nerves are quite high, but we are reducing their training a little bit now just to make sure that they're nice and fresh, ready for the start line. So this is what I want to ask you about. In these final weeks before a race, and we could be a 10K, could be a half marathon, you know, marathon, even an ultra. How do you start to change the way you train and eat to get you, as you say, fresh for race day? Yeah, so it kind of depends on the distance you are doing. So obviously, Rack have the the half, the relay, which is at 10.5K, the 5K and the one mile. So for something like a half marathon, your taper phase is probably about seven days, seven to 10 days. If you were doing a full marathon, it would be slightly longer, potentially two weeks. But obviously, everyone is very individual. So you would continue training and running through that taper phase, but the intensity and the duration, basically the time you're spending on your feet is definitely reduced just to allow your body to recover. So if you've been training for something like a half marathon, then you've probably done a 12-week training block where you have been putting your body through quite some long runs, some intense runs. So you need your body to recover from that. And then in terms of fueling, we tend to say don't try to change anything in the last few days before a race because you don't want to have any nasty side effects. Yeah. And obviously, you will be storing more energy naturally if you keep your intake the same because you are um, you're spending less in terms of energy because you're running less. Now, when I was growing up, there was a half marathon near us called the Great North Run, and it was a huge, huge event. My dad did it for years, and the night before, yeah. they'd always have this pasta party <laughs> where they take over the arena nearby, and people just go and gorge themselves on what's you know. On all the carbs. Um, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about fueling food the day before and the day of. Stephanie, what, what should yeah. people be having and indeed not having? Yeah, so that's actually super important and something that we work on quite a lot with our clients um, that we work with on one-to-one basis over at Innerfight. So we make sure that they have a fueling strategy definitely for that race. So Rack does have a pasta party the night before, which you can purchase on their okay. website. But um, definitely don't completely overload yourself on too many bowls of pasta. So if pasta is not something you normally eat, um, then you should have been, you basically want to try and mimic what your long runs are um, that you have been doing in your training block. So if you normally have pasta the night before, then all good, stick with that. And then the morning of, we, again, you should have been building like a strategy for what to do on race day. So you would still have your breakfast, like coffee and hydration and things like that. And then for a half marathon, you definitely need to be fueling it during the run. So I think that's where a lot of people kind of fall short on their, um, during a hard race. If they're not fueling, they suddenly have that bonking feeling or what they might call hitting the wall when they basically completely run out of energy. And that's from simply not fueling the run during because you are depleting your glycogen stores. So rule of thumb is generally take something about every 40 minutes so you want to be fueling a, um, a race like a half marathon with carbohydrates. And there are loads of really good sports nutrition brands that can help with that, like the gels or the chews and things like that, which are easy to digest on the go. And presumably maybe try them before as well. Yes, so you're not you know, you're, you're anticipating a taste and how your body's going to yeah. react. And, and, and everyone's completely different. What about well, water so. intake on it? Um, exactly. 
Um, yeah, water yeah. intake. Um, I know there's going to be water stations throughout the Rakhoff Marathon, but how much water should you be aiming to take on board? And obviously we're in beautiful weather right now. It's not like we're running at the peak of summer. What, what's optimum, Stephanie? Yeah, so obviously in summer you need to be taking on a lot more water than we are right now. Um, I think the rack course has about six water stations. Generally, I say try to grab a water at each one because the chances of you being able to, whilst you're running, being able to drink the entire bottle and next to <laughs> next to zero um, because you do end up spilling it a little bit. So I say grab a water at every station you can. And that's also going to help with obviously preventing dehydration, but it's also going to help you absorb that nutrition that you are taking on. And then after you've finished, obviously the rehydration game starts as well. Stephanie, can I ask you about the mental side? I mean, physical, it sounds like if you've been working with a great coach or you've had a good training schedule, you should yeah. be able to physically undertake what, you, uh, what you've signed up for. But do you feel like people underestimate the, the mental barriers that people can have during training and, of course, on race day itself? And any advice for getting your head in the game? Yeah, I think it's, it, running is definitely a mental sport as well. Um, and it's... It, very horrible to see someone like almost crumble during a race because mentally they just feel like they're not confident or not worthy or something like that. So yes, it needs to be trained as much as your physical fitness. Um, but also something I say to a lot of clients is if you've trained for the race physically and mentally, you're ready. Like just enjoy the actual day. So a race like Rack is such good atmosphere and all the running communities go there and almost just absorb the atmosphere and like don't let your mind take over and tell you you can't do it because you basically need to trick it back into thinking it can because the second you lose your mind your body tends to follow so um yeah it's just about being present and just being confident in your race plan so if you go in there knowing what you're trying to get out of that race and why you're running it then mentally it's going to be a lot easier so when it gets harder you can pull back on your why as to why you're um, actually even doing the race We've had a question here from Liam saying, thanks guys, I'm actually doing this, um, but what about carrying the gels, etc.? Where do they go? That's a really good question. What do you tend to advise? Is it, is, is it secret pockets and shorts? Is it, yeah. I don't know, a bum bag, Stephanie? <laughs> yeah. where, 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 where are we stashing this stuff? It's a very good question. Um, so a lot of shorts these days have almost like a pocket in the side. So if you have like a tight pair of shorts or leggings, they have a pocket where you'd normally be able to put your phone. Like, you know that, like... Um, tight to your skin mm -hmm. so a phone pocket as opposed to putting a phone in there you can definitely store some gels in there because they're quite big obviously females you can stash them in your sports bra or you can run with like a running belt which goes around your waist and therefore um, you can almost like pop a few gels and even some hydration in there as well Stephanie what about things to keep you going on the day do you ever listen to things when you're running or are you more of a fan of you know silence and and listening to your body yeah personally I do not run with headphones um some races actually don't allow it anyway and I I personally find I'm a lot more um focused when I am just running with my own breath and my thoughts as opposed to getting distracted by music. So I don't run to be distracted. I run to be present and in the moment. And that really helps me focus on the actual race at hand. So everyone's different. But I think the majority of people are generally now swaying to headphone-free running. 
interesting wow I, I don't yeah. know I think you know you see so many like you know running mega mix and you know the the work the workout playlists on, on all these platforms but yeah I think, I think it might be really slightly different for training that, that you maybe maybe um and I think I think you spoke to it earlier about such a fantastic atmosphere so we'd love the crowds yeah. to go out as well and cheer and you know really keep runners going and um, I guess any other essential gear, put your name on your T-shirts, they can shout your name. What else are you going to be uh, encouraging everyone to, to be running with or taking with them, Stephanie, for Rackhoff Marathon? Indeed, any other events that are coming up? Um, what do I recommend to take with you? Um, just some good spirits. Yeah, like some gear, some, some little tips, like, tips yeah. and tricks. <laughs> Don't buy anything new on race day. So nothing new, like no new shoes on race day, no new socks or shorts or anything so everything you're running in you previously run in um because it's super annoying when you get a blister or something and it's because you're wearing a new pair of socks so yeah nothing new on race day stick to what you know stephanie humphrey thank you so much for joining us all the very best and everyone you've been working with ahead of the Russell Kamer Half Marathon. As I should say, it's going to be a brilliant event. And if you do want Stephanie's details, you can find her. She's a member of the Under Armour squad. She's an endurance running coach. And uh, if you're not signed up for the 18th, maybe next year could be your year. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.